You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. From the lips of many a professor at many a Christian college, the words integration of faith and learning sound as natural as liberal arts or critical thinking. Yet, as Chris Gertz and a number of other scholars argue in the recent book, The Pietist Vision of Christian Education, that phrase, inflected as it is by 20th century Calvinism, stands to benefit from a lively and challenging encounter with pietism, the strain of Protestant Christianity variously ignored, dismissed, or even opposed as anti-intellectual in many Christian college circles. Chris is with us here to talk about some of these contributions that a specifically pietist approach to education might make, and Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome him now. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. Sure, Nathan. Can I use that when we do the revision? That was great. That was <laughs> a super summation. I should. Well, should you know, I, I, I do what I can. I do what I can. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Chris, tell us a little bit as we get rolling about the genre of the volume, because you note at one point that you started out thinking you were going to do a more Swedish version of Arthur Holmes's The Idea of a Christian College, <laughs> but ultimately that the nature of pietism steered the project in some significantly different ways formally. Mm-hmm. How did this volume get its particular character? Right. Well, I guess as a historian, I should provide some context for it. Um and I don't know how much people want to hear my intellectual autobiography, but I'll, I'll go with it. Um, I, I'm a diplomatic historian by training, but I got to Bethel, and while I, I had the Swedish thing in common, I'm, I'm kind of a stealth Swede with the Garrett's name. I'm <laughs> Peterson and Anderson and Larson and, and Nelson on my mom's side. Um, I, mean, I, I resonated with culturally with it. I, I'm from Minnesota originally. I um, go to a church with a kind of cousin denomination. You, you would hear that Bethel was a pietist college, and if you pressed at all, you would get very little further explanation. Maybe some, some sense of we educate whole and holy persons. And um, it was intriguing and dissatisfying. And at that point in my career, I, I, I was new to Christian colleges uh, of any sort. I, I hadn't attended them. I wasn't familiar with them. And so initially, I really benefited from encountering the faith learning integration literature and um, and starting to appreciate the intellectual rigor of the reform tradition. And in my field, learning from people like Mark Knoll and George Marsden. Um, increasingly, though, that it felt incomplete, useful, but certainly not um, – not sufficient and not always redolent of my own tradition. And I think it was probably 2006, I went to a workshop um, preparing to write a tenure essay. And two scholars from Messiah College, uh, Rhonda and Jake Jacobson, just published a collection with Oxford University Press, um, trying to expand the conversation, go beyond reformed integrationist talk. And um, it got me thinking, well, if we say we're pietists, do we have a different model to offer? I mean, if if we use this in our history, is there any theory that can derive from this um, that it would have implications for teaching or scholarship or the nature of our community or or other other topics? And so I I put my my diplomatic history work on hold and decided to just spend a couple of years researching Bethel history and some similar colleges. And um, that's what I've been doing ever since. And and so at some point, I think I did have this notion. I published an article with Christian Scholars Review about Carl Lundquist, the former president of Bethel, and Carl Olson, the former president of North Park. And so I thought, well, maybe that's that's the beginning for a book. That'd be something like Holmes's book, a, you know, a pietist idea of a Christian college. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was just that I realized I didn't actually have that much to say or that I wasn't the one to say it. But I, I think it, it turned into the realization that Pietism, among many other things, is about communities 
and maybe the most distinctive contribution of pietism to Christian life together is the notion of the small group of a conventicle or an ecclesiola. And, and so I started playing with the notion of what if this was written by a kind of ecclesiola, a conventicle of people maybe associated with Bethel, which does at least use the language of pietism. Um, and spark a conversation starting with them. And so I, I got some funding from the Lilly uh, Fellows Program, did a two-day workshop uh, in the summer with about 15 scholars uh, who either work at Bethel or previously had worked at Bethel. And that then launched a few writing projects, and then I recruited a couple of others and um, pitched a book to University Press, and, and that's that's the book we're talking about here. So it, it's very much meant to have the, the feel of listening in on a conversation. That's mm. within one community, but maybe beneficial to other communities. And we can maybe come back to that theme. Right. So I write the introduction and conclusion, but otherwise, I mean, I've, I've suggested resources for people. I've, I've, as an editor, I've suggested um, you know, people wrestle with certain themes, but it's, it's very multi, um, multifaceted. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I appreciate about this is that, you know, as a number of the contributors note, you know, Arthur Holmes is very philosophically minded. Uh, but this volume, I mean, comes at it from a social science angle and a hard science angle and a philosophical angle and kind of <clears> gets, a, you're right, it gets that conversational feel going. I think that's one of the things that really commends this volume. So I think that was uh, one of its better features. Oh, I appreciate it. I mean, it's it's definitely missing pieces, too. It, it's it, Despite that it's not only philosophers, it is three philosophers, it's a number of theologians, it, it leans fairly heavily on the humanities. Mm -hmm. um, social sciences are a little bit better represented. We have a sociologist and a psychologist. Um, I had to kind of bring in some natural science folks, um, a nursing professor, but I mean, it, I mean, I guess as I start thinking about where the conversation goes at Bethel, my first goal is to bring in people from other professional programs or from the fine arts or from the mm -hmm. seminary or from adult education or student life is something we'll come to soon. Yeah, yeah. And, and then with student life, I mean, that's one of those things that uh, I know that I've been in a lot of conversations about, and I mean, that relationship that often comes up in those conversations between head and heart uh, is one that really pervades this collection. I mean, you see it in essay after essay. I'm sure we'll return to it once, or maybe even more than once as we go, but taking a broad angle on things, how do these anatomical metaphors give rise specifically to pietist ways of thinking about Christian colleges? Sure, and I, I, I appreciate you use the word anatomical metaphors because one really useful moment in even the workshop that sparked this was our colleague David Williams, who writes the first chapter. He's a philosopher mm -hmm. at Azusa Pacific, and he had been reading some of these things that I had fed fed him, and he was really struck by the kind of medical and organic nature of the language of, of new birth, even, and um, the sense of conversion is is kind of rest, restoring to wholeness, of moving from a state of disease to health. And so I think that's partly it's just um, metaphorical or, or rhetorical. There, there's something about if it's only about the head, it's incomplete. I mean, it's mm -hmm. detached from these bodies that we that we have. And so, I mean, it's really probably more like head, heart, and hands, or you know, we should put the spirit or the soul in there somewhere. But right, or, um, or one more H, and then we could have a you know, livestock <laughs> show. Right. It's pointing towards, I, mean, I think, uh, wholeness and embodiedness or a sense mm -hmm. of being incarnate. Um, I mean, I'm kind of surprised. One thing that did surprise me is no one used Jamie Smith's work, um, which I had done a kind of faculty workshop discussion on desiring the kingdom after sure, it came sure. out. Sure, sure. And I, I, I mean, that's, that's very reformed. And in some ways, he's trying to go before Calvin, right? Go back to Augustine and, and recover mm -hmm. um, some of this very language. He talks about 
it's really I think he translates it more as gut than heart, but there, there's mm-hmm. something about the cardia that maybe education has been missing. And I, I think I don't know if you would want to hear a pietist saying this because he has his own frustrations with pietism, small case <laughs> p. But um, yeah, I mean I think in, in that chapter of, at the end of that book, he does say Christian colleges that focus so much on the head, so much on like worldview formation. I mean, it seems like they're producing these these half-formed graduates who, who can articulate right the, the that sense of worldview, and yet their behavior is no different, and their affections are, are untouched. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that Bethel does it any better. Honestly, I'm not sure we want to you know go out saying that Calvin you know does worse than Bethel at producing people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. But I, I think he's picking up on something that often dissatisfies us about that literature as well. Mm-hmm. That we're not sure it touches. Um, effective ways of knowing, um, or that it touches, uh, we, we talk a lot about virtues, certainly in this book. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't know that I want to simply be heart, because that implies a kind of squishy emotionalism that feeds that pietism equals anti-intellectualism um, stereotype. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it suggests more of at least the wholeness that we want to talk about, and, and saying that, the, I mean, I guess the basic pietist tension is Christianity is not just intellectual assent. Or it's it it's not just erudition if you're a preacher, and it, it's not just solving a formula. It's 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 got to penetrate deeper, and has to result in changed affections and changed behavior. And, and so, at the same time, this is all within a university, which you know, very much we want to cultivate right. a life of the mind. So there's that tension that we can never really escape. And I think we're just trying to maybe um, move the scales a little bit back into balance. Oh sure, I mean, that, and that's one of those things that you know I. I, I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate what Jamie Smith's doing, and I actually use Jamie Smith's book, uh, Desiring the Kingdom, when I do uh, new faculty training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I sort of incorporate it into my writing across the curriculum program for the new faculty, and I mean, I've really enjoyed teaching it. I, I, I guess my own reticence, I'll put it that mm-hmm. way, is that you know, in my own context, you know, in a very uh, evangelical college, the the tendency, especially among the students, but even sometimes in the faculty, and that's when it really bugs me, mm-hmm. uh, is to diminish and maybe even to warn against the life of the mind. You mm-hmm. know, yep. uh, it, it's not. I'll, I'll put it to you this way, and I mean, it, and it's a small grammatical inflection, but I think it's an important one. It's the shift from "Don't make Christianity only about your head" to don't make Christianity about your head. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think so, that's fair. Yeah. yeah so I, I, it's something I try to nod to in, in the kind of historical introduction. This, this has been attention pietists, and we are guilty of anti-intellectualism. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a strain of pietist defensiveness that we mm-hmm. that I, I hope we're being sensitive to. Like, um, we're defensive because we've got historical examples of the pietist strain within evangelicalism that does tend towards this uh, um, suspicion of higher forms of learning. And the oh, sense sure, that sure. if you feel correctly, that's what matters, and anything beyond that detracts from the mm-hmm. authentic Christianity that, that aren't in Spain or in Franco we're talking about. Right, right. I mean, that, that's probably why I, I always turn to medieval models for... Mm-hmm. How to relate those because they, they, uh, they weren't worried about those sorts of things, so they could actually do the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Well, anyway, I, I want to alert our listeners to the fact that at this point, I'm going to be asking Chris about things that other folks wrote. <laughs> so our listeners should note that we're hearing from the editor of this volume, not the folks who wrote these articles. But I want to talk about them anyway because, like I said, it's a really strong volume. 
Well, thanks. And I, I should alert any contributors who are listening. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. well, anyway, I'll do one, my best. I'll... <laughs> one of the tensions that David Williams names in his essay is the tension between faculty and student life, and it's something we've already nodded to. Uh, I know that the Christian Humanist crew has talked about the same, so I'm curious to know what it, what the pietist plea for peace sounds like <laughs> when student life and the faculty are so often doing battle over whether Christianity shouldn't be just about the heart or whether it shouldn't just be about the head. Right. It probably sounds hypocritical because I'm not sure Bethel is any any model for this. I, um, I mean, I think at our best, I, I can probably point to some points of convergence. Um, you know, our, our mutual friend Sam Mulberry just did a project with one of our associate deans trying to chronicle the experience of students of color at Bethel. That was, that was really powerful. And we've got a program right now in the offing in the online world where student life and academics have been coming together to define um, some common kind of curricular outcomes that I mean, in some ways happen in academics, in some ways in residential life, and and, and really in both. So I, I mean, I think there are points of productive convergence there, but I think you see the same silos, you see the same tensions. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, David is experiencing this partly in an unusual setting. He he left Bethel to go to Azusa Pacific, which A, is really a bastion of, of in the Christian college world student development. I mean, a number of our folks in in those offices have done their master's or their doctorate work there. Oh, but he's okay. in a particular program out in the High Sierra, which is a kind of great book slash wilderness program where he works hand in hand with student life people. And just the nature of that community, it, it's... I mean, he takes on a lot of, of a student life role. And so I think he's looking at it from the perspective of, here's how I can work. You know, here's how I do partner with someone in student life. Here's where I'm able to take on some things that in other contexts would be compartmentalized and say, that's not for a faculty person to deal with. So I, I think he's wishing this for a larger community and wondering how we can recover it. Um, I, mean, I guess where I sympathize with what he's saying is, is there is this kind of tendency in evangelical campuses that I've seen towards saying the heart belongs to student life or student development and, and the head belongs to the faculty. And right, right. I, I don't know what the solution practically is to that except to say that it can't be true. And um, I mean, I, I can only really speak for the faculty side here, which is to say that I, I care at least as much about how I'm forming hearts and hands as I am for how I'm forming the head. I, I, I'm teaching a new class called Introduction to History for our new majors mm -hmm. and minors. And um, we've done a lot of, I think, pretty heavy lifting for these students philosophically about the nature of the discipline and the nature of what is the past and how do we experience time as finite creatures. But we actually started with, you know, why are you passionate about history? What you know, what excites oh, you about okay. it? How do you All feel right. about this? And you know, at least I have that there. That's something that we're forming, that we're shaping, even as we seem to be doing this this very heady kind of stuff that, um, I mean, in, in some ways, it's it's starting they're only there because they respond to that maybe dimly understood kind of spark or that, 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 that emotional pull. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think I see it best actually in my own experience when we get off campus. And maybe this is why David is so committed to it because he has this chance to, to go away from the, the structures. And so when we take a J-term trip, to Europe, like we just did to teach on World War One. Mm -hmm. There's no student life person there. We're, we're doing residential life because we're living together, and I'm we're we're, we're encountering students in very different guises than we normally do. I'm mm -hmm. I'm struck that in my normal time at Bethel, I've I've been in a dorm 
twice, I think, um, in one of oh, those wow. ones, <laughs> my first year on campus. And, and there's there's a little bit of a sense like it, it, it's that's outside the boundaries of where faculty ought to go. But when you're doing this trip together with 12 students, and my wife was along this time, it's you're thrown together and you're locked in hostels together. And it, it felt so rich. And then to come back to this place where those those boundaries existed, I guess I, I just nodded along a lot with David on this. And mm-hmm. I, I think I'm, I'm glad he raises the issue. I don't know that he suggests here's what the solution has to be, except that we need to be attentive to it. And right. afraid, I don't have a better solution either. Well, let me ask you this as kind of a follow up. I mean, one of the writers, as you know, that I uh, has influenced me pretty greatly is Stan Harawas. And one of the one of the concepts that he's constantly bringing up when he writes about the university is that the university in its teaching and learning function should be a place that develops certain modes of human excellence mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. uh so that you know truth telling and courage to confront dangerous ideas and things mm-hmm. like that the reason that we the reason that we can even you know entertain the notion that student life owns the heart is because we've lost a sense that the intellectual life itself is one that develops modes of human excellence. I mean, do you think yeah. there's anything to that or? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would want to say, I guess, um, I mean, I, I haven't plumbed this too deeply as a historian, but I would suspect you've got two professionalizations going on at some mm-hmm. level. I mean, I, I, I know I see this with student life that it, it's, yeah, at one point in Bethel's life and probably in the life of a lot of these colleges, you know, there's a dean of students. They, they might have actually been a faculty member who just they lived in a dorm. And and over time, you get, you know, mostly to its credit, a body of literature built up about that, active research going on, schools dedicated. And I think you've seen a professionalization of student development. We just had mm-hmm. the big Christian college group here this past summer. Um, and they were doing workshops and hearing plenary addresses and, and buying books about it. I mean, on our side, I guess, I mean, I think I feel like professors have abdicated a kind of knowing and learning. And, and in my field, I, I see that all the time. I, I, I'm glad for the professionalization of history in the late 19th, early 20th century. It also is mm-hmm. happening in a kind of, it's happening in the midst of modernity and a certain changes within the German university that uh, suggest that the formation of the character is is not all that important compared to the creation of knowledge and right right and and, and you know it's bound up with secularization and many other things we, we probably shouldn't try to get into here but I oh, right right I, I, I yeah I, I think and I think you're probably right I think a richer form of this you probably do have to go even back beyond pietism and mm-hmm. um, and that's why I appreciate what you guys are doing it with <laughs> I me mean, honestly with the Christian humanist project I think has been really um, it's been really influential for us as we think about, you know, our first connection, you know, was, was with the Western Civ course we teach and, and thinking mm-hmm. that it's, we're not just dumping bucket full of information about a timeline into people's heads, but we're thinking about how it shapes, um, in some ways, their loves, right? Um, mm-hmm. Their ability to confront these scary things. And yeah, so I, I just, I, mean, I, I won't put it in a plug for you. I just admire the, oh, the work thank you, you guys thank are you. doing with that <laughs> podcast. And of course, with this one, which is clearly a wonderful, wonderful show many people should listen to. Yes, that many, many knowledgeable people. scholars into it. Um, well, and, and, you know, this phenomenon that we're talking about, I mean, makes me think about uh, Victor Davis Hansen's book, Who Killed Homer? Mm-hmm. And I mean, while there's there's so much in that book that makes me twitch. I can't deny that there's a certain appeal to it precisely because of the professionalization you just described, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's something we're still navigating, and I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this first one because there's a lot of good stuff going on, but, uh, you know, just to say that, you know, it's it's something that resonated with me as well, that, you know, there's there's a separation there between these realms of the life of the campus 
that shouldn't be there. And I, and I, I like the fact that, you know, you stopped at it shouldn't be there and didn't try to offer too much <laughs> <laughs> as far as a, a programmatic solution. Cause I, I, I don't know if I'd believe you if you had one. I don't. I mean, I guess <laughs> further diagnosis I'd offer that maybe resonates with some, some themes of pietism. I, mean, I think pietism does have a this sort of constant fear of institutionalization of Christianity. Yeah. And, and I think that that is another thing that's happening is Bethel has become this place that has right now 2,600 undergraduate students, as many adults, graduate mm-hmm. seminary students, a faculty of like 300 people. And, and so you develop structures that are meant to make it more efficient. And um, those structures serve useful purposes. They also serve to, to separate people and demarcate turf and I think we're constantly wrestling with that. But the pietist solution to that is you need to find smaller communities than these conventicles that mm-hmm. um, are in some sense transcend those boundaries and, and allow you to be innovative and experimental. And mm-hmm. I, I suspect for us that's where the solution will come. I just I, I don't know that we've seen it fully emerge quite yet. I gotcha. Well, I want to turn to uh, Janelle Paris's essay on anthropology. And this one interested me especially because, as I understand the history of anthropology, it has some pretty explicitly anti-missionary and thus in some sense anti-Christian roots at the levels of philosophical assumptions where someone like Arthur Holmes operates. Right. And yet Paris argues, and I think pretty convincingly, that within a pietist framework that emphasizes head and heart, to go back to those anatomical metaphors, mm-hmm. something like a Christian anthropology remains possible. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Right. And I mean, I should add a little context here. In, in some ways, Janelle's essay is really present at the creation before the creation of this volume. It, it came out in Christian Scholars Review in its initial form at the same time that I was getting this notion of exploring pietist models. She, ah, okay. So she was still at Bethel at that point. Um, I think we had just published it in CSR or was about to, but she had presented this at Messiah, and then she presented this paper to this workshop I was part of. Um, and then has since moved on to Messiah herself, but she agreed to, to let us use it and to update a few of the statistics. And I, I'm glad because I really think it, it gave at least food for thought to a lot of us. You know, it, mm-hmm. we, we talk a lot about the integration of faith and learning. Well, what if faith is not the only Christian virtue we ought to be integrating? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what has been lost? And, and so, I mean, I'm interested in hope learning integration as well, but I think love learning is a really powerful notion, especially for maybe pietists to play around with because it does get back to head and heart. So I, I should be really cautious claiming much knowledge about anthropology, but I can sum up what she writes, which is, it, it does seem, and Christian anthropologists have made the argument that if you are getting at the level of these kind of um, presuppositions, that there are some in the, in, in the history of anthropology that are just antithetical. Um, the naturalism, materialism, um, and maybe a certain kind of humanism, I guess, that maybe it's a little bit too optimistic about the human condition, or mm-hmm. if you really want to push it, elevates humans to, to a godlike status. Um and if if you can only have that argument wage that war at the level of those assumptions, um, I think she suspects you're, you're, you can't work your way to a truly Christian anthropology because you either have to reject the Christian part or the anthropological part. And mm-hmm. I, I apologize to her for that for that summary. I mean, but one way <laughs> she illustrates this is by um, response to an article on the missionary position by Robert Priest, um, which mm-hmm. was in I think, current anthropology a while back, and um, features a number of somewhat Mostly hostile responses and, and sometimes nuanced, like the one from T.M. Lerman's a little bit more nuanced. So I think she wants to shift the discussion then to what if Christianity is not actually about these assumptions, um, these um, 
the things that Arthur Holmes would would tend to emphasize. What if it's um, about the affections? What if it's about what motivates you in your field? And especially, what if it's about the application of all these things? So she talks about uh, mission maybe being something Christian anthropologists uh, should not run away from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know enough about this at Bethel to know that it's historically been a bit of a tension, you know, that anthropology is not simply a means towards the ends of missionaries, um, but that it's still we still do have a kind of cross-cultural missional component in that department, and that maybe that actually is something that, that creates a Christian anthropology. But I think more broadly, she talks about applied anthropology and, and mm-hmm. how... Um, if you're motivated, motivated, especially for a love of people on the margins, that anthropology um, can be applied towards very practical ends. And, and that certainly mm-hmm. seems very much akin to pietism's emphasis on Christianity as this lived experience. And uh, you know, Franca's concern for not just having love be this abstract, fuzzy, emotional phenomenon, but something that's lived out in practice and maybe even leads to institutions and agencies that are at least charitable and, and philanthropic or, or missional. So I, I, yeah, I think it was a good starting point. I, I wish I had taken the time today to go back and read CSR because there was actually a response, I think, from a Calvin College anthropologist um, oh, okay. challenging the assumptions, and then she gets a response to it. So this is, I don't know where that argument has gone in that field since mm-hmm. then. Um, I mean, I, I do know one thing that, that really stood out is in that original, original article, she had had a teaching assistant do some research into the place of anthropology in evangelical colleges and was mm-hmm. kind of astonished how rare it is. And so I had my TA, Jacob Manning, do some research this past spring to update it. And I, I think what he found is there is really only one fully threat, fully fledged anthro department at Biola and then maybe mm-hmm. eight more where it existed within a larger set. And then, you know, and, maybe and like 30 like some percent. Department. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh-huh. it's, it's, if it's there at all, it, it tends to be buried or there are a couple of anthro courses in service of cultural studies or missions of some sort. But right. it, it, it does seem like there is, for whatever reason, some suspicion of it or the utility is not not um, not appreciated. Right. Although I, I think there's some hope for that. I mean, in that just about every Christian college that I've worked at has a psychology department. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I mean, historically, I mean, in the 19th century, psychology very explicitly positioned itself as a sort of usurper to take over what Christianity used to do. But now, you know, there's a there's a sense that the cooperation can happen and there's no big intellectual problem with it. Yeah, that's true. I think that's that's very. I mean, it's interesting that it's such a popular department here. And oh yeah, yeah. To some extent, is a kind of default position, I think, for some students. But there's a lot of interest in, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether for continuing research or going into counseling programs, especially. It's a it's a very popular field among our right, students. Right, right. Yeah. And the only and the only reason I, I know even as much as I do about that is because I actually had a student uh, do a a historical fiction short story for a literature class I was teaching and tried to create this uh, Christian counselor figure in a 19th century setting. And I said, okay, something's wrong about that. So I, I went and did some digging and I said, okay, that's why it's wrong because right. that, that, that category is just unintelligible up until, you know, the, the, probably the evangelical resurgence of the fifties, 1950s. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Our pastor's wife actually works as a Christian counselor. I should ask Donna to, to comment on this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I want to jump to uh, Dale Dury's contribution. Uh, And one of the particular theological practices of pietism that Dury holds up as hopeful for intellectual work is the common priesthood and the practices that go with it. Now, Dury's essay gave me a strong notion of what these ideas might look like lived out. 
Can you comment a little bit on what the life of the common priest looks like? Sure. So, I mean, I think historically this is a, um, a place where pietists feel like they're recovering something of Luther that had been lost. Um, that Luther has the strong notion of whether you call it the common priesthood or the spiritual priesthood or the priesthood mm-hmm. of all believers. Um, that's lost as you get a kind of hardening um, uh, in structured Lutheranism that's got bishops and a professional clergy and um, and a detachment, a separation then from the laity. So. Uh, among Spainer's original pious wishes or his proposal is a call for a recovery of that and um, a call for a recovery of the role of the layperson within the community. So I think Dale's trying to to take that, think through the nature of the priesthood, put that in conversation with, um, for example, some of the work that John Walton at Wheaton has done on recovering the, the ancient world of Genesis, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I think for me, I, mean, I guess at, at the most basic level, it's that there are, there are certain things that maybe we do tend to suggest belong to the, the priestly realm and in interpreting that as what pastors do. Um, that, mm-hmm. that worship is something, that praise is something that's done by those people with that particular calling, that prayer belongs to that. So I mean, maybe in the same way we've talked about the faculty-student life separation, is there um, – yeah, maybe even a faculty kind of pastoral um, separation. I, I mean, the way I read it was actually that I, I, I used to muse on the, about this notion that um, the nature of the calling the professor is actually a fairly pastoral calling. I, in a very early draft of a paper I was writing, I showed it to a, an older pastor friend of mine named Jim Hawkinson, and, and he said, "Chris, you sound like a pastor." I mean, it, <laughs> like the way I was talking about education I mean, evoked his experience of his calling. And so I, I played with that a little bit, that maybe um, that even though we do not have that, I mean, I, I believe in the need for a separate clergy and a separate training, and, and I'm not making making claims to, to be a pastor in that sense, but I think there are things that we tend to maybe shove over onto the plate of pastors that really belong to all of us and even to professors and students. And so what does it mean for us to, to offer um, a sacrifice of praise, to offer worship? Um, how do we bring prayer into the classroom? Um, and especially for Dale, in what ways do we serve the common good? He's trying to attach these two common phrases. How does, if mm-hmm. we took up the common priesthood, how would that serve the common good? And so this is in many ways the jumping off point for a, a series of chapters thinking through how do we go not just within our community but beyond the community. And I just trying to make the case that if we actually took this up and, and didn't um, set apart some of these functions for a very small minority with special training that um, it would actually benefit uh, those beyond our campus. Mm-hmm. And I, I think here Dale – is a pastor. He was a pastor before he became a professor. I think he's looking at planting a church. And, and so I, I guess I read him as thinking about the intersection between the church and the college in that mm-hmm. sense. But I, I, I guess I am curious, um, Nathan, how you respond. I mean, what, which ideas of his clicked with you? I mean, as someone who has straddled that divide yourself. Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, kind of jumped out at me in, in his essay is specifically this notion that, you know, the you're right. I mean, the idea that, you know, the professor is somehow off the hook for the spiritual questions that arise specifically in the context of intellectual inquiry is one that's informed by this strong sacerdotalism, Mm. uh, but in a sort of, in a negative vein rather than in a assertive vein. Right. And I, and I thought that that caution was a really strong one. So I kind of dug that. Well, I, I, Sarah Shady is one of those names that I recognize from the table of contents. Uh, and her essay with Marion Larson calls for an approach to comparative religion. 
that look like it's rooted in something like a pietist virtue ethics, mm -hmm. uh, which of course I was digging. You can go into other parts of the essay if, as well if you'd like, but talk about their notion of hagiography, and I know they don't use that term, but mm -hmm. that's what they're doing, mm -hmm. uh, as an avenue for good interreligious dialogue. Yeah, I, um, I, I mean, honestly, you mentioned that. I had to go back and read to, to even catch what they're talking So I, I think I know what you're talking about there. Um, so I think the broader claim they're making is um, the kind of work they do with interfaith dialogue and um, interfaith service um, is a good idea for lots of reasons um, and lots of reasons that pietists would deem really good reasons. So they talk about how um, putting our students in conversation with other religious traditions and not just in the classroom, but actually actively in the communities and shared service and shared fellowship um, mm -hmm. actually leads to greater spiritual maturity. That uh, it's not that just that you understand those religions at a cognitive level better, or better, or you can compare them, or even you can make an apologetic against them. But it actually deepens your own understanding of your own convictions and and how you live them out. I mean, I, a lot of what they're talking about, though, is I think how, if we're an evangelical college, how do we live in this increasingly plural society? Mm -hmm. And rather than being a kind of citadel that walls itself off against um, these competing faith traditions or the absence of a faith tradition that it's healthier for us to have um, dialogue. But they talk about how do you have that dialogue. And I was trying to read back to find where they said this. Maybe it was an earlier presentation. But they they do point out sometimes we, we have these conversations where we hold up the best of Christianity against the worst of, say, Islam mm -hmm. or of atheism. You know, we, we compare Augustine against know, um, Richard Dawkins or something. And oh, well, sure, clearly sure. that makes the case then for the – why, why Christianity is the superior belief system. And so mm -hmm. I think what they're arguing is is drawing both on something uh, um, Franca says, one of the great kind of founding fathers of pietism. We, we shouldn't neglect the, the, the inspiring heroic stories of our faith, the, the people who illustrate these virtues we talk about. Um, but it's also drawing on one of the two books they're in conversation with, which is Brian McLaren's book, which I always forget the title. It's it's meant to be kind of a cute title of, it's like Jesus. Yeah, why, why did Jesus, Moses, and the Buddha cross the road? Yeah, and Muhammad, right. Um, and yeah, so I'm sorry. Right, suggesting that, that maybe we ought to look to the best of these traditions. Um so whether they accept that as hagiography, I, I mean, I would, I can see the case for it. I also don't want to lose a, um, a, a critical detachment here. And mm -hmm. we, we've, we've all heard in the past week because of the president's comments at the national prayer breakfast. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tend to think the value of understanding the, um, the failings of our own traditions um, mm -hmm. and of other traditions as well. Well, what I thought their take, what I think they did that was interesting, I'll put it mm -hmm. that way, and I really liked it. Uh, is that you should direct your hagiography towards the other party. Yeah. So in other words, I mean, tell the other person the story of their illustrious figures mm -hmm. in ways that make sense ethically within your own system. Sure. And that That's... just strikes me as a great, I mean, very rich, very narrative-laden way to talk when, you know, some of the sort of Arthur Holmes sort of philosophical assumptions are not going to be the same at the outset. It strikes me that that narrative approach to it, you know, might ultimately be a more fruitful avenue to interreligious dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, I, I mean, I should point out Sarah and Marion and um, and their colleague Amy Poppengard, kind of in the forefront for Bethel with us. We're part of a a White House. Um, it's called Campus Religion and Community Service Initiative. Uh -huh. And so I think this is this is not. 
I mean, I think they're trying to establish a kind of theoretical basis for this, but it's, it's you know, as good pietists, it's based on lived experience and, and mm-hmm. having done these kind of conversations. And I mean, I, I appreciate that they scatter within their chapters, um, you know, statements from their students of um, pushing back against this or initial suspicion about this. I, mm-hmm. I think they recognize it's not an easy thing to do, but um, see it as a pretty fruitful thing to do. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm interested to hear your take on the, on the virtue ethics, because that was something that I guess somewhat surprised me how much of uh, the language of these chapters as they developed was taking up the language of virtue and, and the specific virtues often being love we've talked about, hope we've touched mm-hmm. on a little bit, but sure. humility, hospitality, open-mindedness mm-hmm. we'll probably come mm-hmm. back to. Um, which I, I've, I've dabbled enough in virtue ethics to be dangerous. <laughs> Those aren't always the virtues that get talked about in, in Christian virtue ethics. Oh, sure, ethics, sure. So. Well, and, and like I said, I mean, what I found interesting and and promising about their proposal is that you know what they talk about is doing hagiography not on your own saints but on the other people's saints Mm -hmm. and like i said i mean you know the the reason that that strikes me as interesting is that because you know one of the uh methodological signatures of virtue ethics is that virtues are always embedded within a community story right and that strikes me as a way to say okay let's tell the story of other people's luminaries Mm. so that they can hear what our story looks like without making it a my hero versus your hero thing. But let me tell you in terms, let me invite you to think about your hero in terms of my system as an invitation into my system. Right. And of course that always implies that they're also allowed to tell the same sort of thing, you know, uh, tell me why it is that a Buddhist might like Jesus right or yep. why you know a muslim might like dr king or you know something like that and and like i said i mean i i think that that is just a rich virtue ethics because it's a proposal to remove the sort of insularity that people often criticize virtue ethics for practicing mm. and that's what i find so promising about it because it it takes one of the genuine weaknesses of the virtue ethics tradition and says Let's try to dream up some ways to surmount that. Well, this is great. I'll have to tell them about this. Now it can be their next uh, their next chapter. Their next <laughs> all right, all right. Well, you know, if I if if I make a footnote, you know that that Georgia guy <laughs> from the podcast. <laughs> well, I want to turn to uh, Richard Peterson's essay. Mm-hmm. This this is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote on science education in a Christian college setting, mm-hmm. and he looks at the concrete practices of science rather than science as an abstraction. So once again, getting away from worldview and getting into ways of life, what sorts of dangers do his students detect in the life of the scientist that a worldview analysis approach might miss? And what resources from pietist sources does he offer to confront those dangers? Sure. Yeah, I, I this is one of my favorites too, and it was a kind of a late addition when I recognized that we didn't have um, I, I kind of issued an open invitation to the faculty to take part in this project, and, mm-hmm. and we just didn't happen to get folks from the, the natural and physical sciences. But um, fortunately, Dick is my mom's cousin, so I have a little bit of play oh, okay. with him. <laughs> and um, and I, I mean, I couldn't have asked. I mean, he was right at the top of my list. I mean, he's, um, I mean, I don't know if he has a Wikipedia page, but compared to most Bethel faculty, he's pretty well recognized within this field, but specifically mm-hmm. because of science education. Um, okay. And so he's he's been president of the um, um, Physics Teachers of America. I forget what it's called, the American Association of Physics Teachers. He's done NF, NSF project for undergraduate um, science education. So 
it, it was great to just see him as he ends his time at Bethel put some of these ideas down on paper because I've heard mm-hmm. these talks before and he's done these demonstrations here and in high schools and I, I just wanted to have a kind of artifact that we can pass down because one distinctive of Bethel that I think does surprise people is that it's got this amazing physics department. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, not just because it sends so many students out to be grad students, but because it's so deeply committed to teaching. And, right. and, and the kind of language he uses to describe that is, is I think, surprising, right? It, he starts with delight. Mm-hmm. There, there's something about the experience of discovery, I mean, whether it's um, really being on the cutting edge of theoretical physics research or being just an 18-year-old who's never looked at the universe quite that way, that um, there's something... Um, deeply moving about the delight that you experience in science that we maybe intellectualize away or maybe dismissive of. And and you can experience that as a teacher. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I often think that we we value the discovery of the new. That's that's the hallmark of, of great research. Um, oh, sure, sure. But as a teacher, you experience this constantly because your students are always discovering something new. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think that leads then to something like the experience of conversion that we talk about in a couple of the other chapters, that there's mm-hmm. this kind of um, encounter with the transcendent. There, there's You kind of realize that something is beyond what you'd possibly known or imagined, and, and it leads you, at least in this setting, into perhaps a relationship with God. I mean, I think some of the dangers that he talks about, um, I mean, one thing I, I think about a lot is the notion of we're supposed to seek truth, but there are, are are different ways of doing it, and mm-hmm. there are ways that are more or less truthful, actually, to seek truth, um, and there are ways that are more or less humble to seek truth, and, and more or less winsome to seek truth. And I think he does point to the egotism that's possible, and that's certainly not true just of physics or sciences, but any field of study. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, that can be true in the classroom, the sense of you being the expert and wielding that power over people. He also talks about the, t- the uh, detachment of sciences from the practical concerns of, of daily life from some of the um, some of the questions other disciplines would be raising. Um, and finally, the one that really I'd love to have us develop as this conversation go, I mean, questions, how are scientists serving those on the margins? How are they alleviating the mm-hmm. suffering of the world? I mean, I, in an earlier chapter, I love that Roger Olson describes this project as, as restoring what's been broken, restoring wholeness to, to mm-hmm. persons and, and to the church and to the world. Right, a very Miltonic notion yeah. of education. Uh-huh. And, and, and I think Dick is pointing out, scientists, uh, you know, I mean, they, have, they have access to the structures of power. They have access to tremendous wealth and status mm-hmm. and, and, and political influence. And um, and you can use that, and he's worked for National Science Foundation, but uh, it can maybe also blind you then to the injustices that those structures can perpetrate. Right. And that's not – I mean, I, I hear that in other places of the campus. That's not mm-hmm. something you'd always expect a physicist to be talking about. Um, oh, sure, sure. And I, I, mean, what other, I guess your question prompted me to read it again and, and realize – it's it resonates very strongly with this larger project. A lot of the resources he draws on when they're not pietist necessarily. I mean, it's mm-hmm. everything from a Shaker hymn to a speech by um, by Einstein to mm-hmm. work by Andy Crouch, the Christianity Today editor. And I think that's actually a theme that runs through many of the chapters. They're at least in conversation with people who wouldn't be pietists themselves, but um, mm-hmm. maybe have um, maybe have some wisdom that we can we can accept. Um, I mean, I think it goes back to the chapter from, from my colleague Christian Collins Wynn, suggesting that um, as pietists enter into discourse, they do it in the spirit of of humility, knowing that uh, they, they are probably wrong about something and they need to be convinced. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I appreciate that that 
we're not only going to the Spainer well and the Franca well and the Bloomhart <laughs> well constantly, but there are other resources from other Christian traditions and even from outside of, of Christianity itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one of those, uh, I, I, again, one of the chapters that just speaks very highly about the process that you, that brought forth this volume is the fact that, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name. So just the first time you say it, say it right. And we'll, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll go from there, but is this Ray Van Aragon by any chance? That's the one. Uh, so the fact that you invited Ray Van Aragon to write the chapter he wrote uh, just shows me that this volume really is serious about the Socratic humility that the book espouses. Mm. Now tell our listeners, I mean, what warnings does he offer specifically about what other people have written before his chapters, mm-hmm. first of all, which is great. Yep. And then what counsel does he have for those who strive to be open-minded? Sure. So Ray is uh, the current chair of our philosophy department, um, is, is reformed Christian, uh, ties to Calvin, he goes to a, a CRC church in New Brighton, just down the street from my church. Um, yeah, I always, I always, I'll probably, if you go far enough, I'll say this about every chapter. I'm just thrilled. It was my favorite chapter. Uh, yeah. I, I was really glad to have him <laughs> part of it because I was really... I mean, I, I feel this is a corrective to a, a, a kind of approach to higher education and scholarship that's been dominated by Reformed Christians. I, I would hate to have the scene as um, us saying there's nothing to be learned from that tradition or that they're mm-hmm. purely in conflict. I mean, there, there's obviously much to admire about that tradition and a lot of overlap. I would I would guess many Reformed scholars would say yes and amend many of the things we're saying here. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. true of Ray. But I appreciate that both from his religious tradition and as someone who's a philosopher of religion, he wants to return to some of these virtues. So I mean, it, it's, he talks about adventure, which is a, mm-hmm. a theme that our president raises in chapel often, that we're adventurous Christ followers, that we're not fearful, that we're not hiding behind um, um, pre-existing knowledge or prejudices, but we're willing to go encounter the other. And, and so he takes up then some of the themes that come from his colleague Sarah Shady and, and Marion Larson's chapter about interfaith dialogue mm-hmm. and suggests that to an extent, open-mindedness is an intellectual or epistemic virtue. But um, as with all these, it can also become a vice. Um, mm-hmm. He tells the story of the, this British philosopher, John Hick, who moves from Christian upbringing towards away from that upbringing, um, out of open-mindedness and desire to seek truth, but maybe forgetting certain truths. I mean, he, I, I think a really interesting passage you pointed to in your notes was maybe out of this pietistic desire for community and relationship, we, we hesitate to um, to draw attention to where that open-mindedness is leading people astray. You know, we want, we want to maintain relationships and we're afraid that that, that would invite conflict. I mean, pietists, I think mostly for the better, don't like controversy. Mm-hmm. But we're supposed to preface <laughs> that with needless controversy. And I think Ray is suggesting that sometimes there are needful controversies yeah. as well. And I, I mean, I think I've heard this from Roger Olson, too, that the pietism does incline towards this subjectivism, right? Mm-hmm. And because it's so consciously avoiding Christianity as intellectual assent, as just the head, as you put it, that we need to be reminded there is objective content to the faith. Mm-hmm. We just don't think that adherence to a creed is is the best safeguard for that. And and so I, mean, I think Ray directly responds to what Sarah and Marion are doing with interfaith dialogue or what um, Christian Collins Wynn is saying about the nature of civil discourse and, and mm-hmm. suggesting there might come points where we actually ought not to be open-minded if we also, if we also value the virtue of, um, of um, 
being truthful, of caring about truth. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what strikes me is his counsel is in part to go to very pietistic kind of practices. He, he talks yeah. about the need then for, for Bible study and for small groups and, and mm-hmm. for prayer. And I think rightly for some attention to historic creeds. Um, I guess to show some of my cards, I, I'm a very churchly pietist. I'm, I'm as partly the, the denominational tradition I come from, you know, it, it, it respects the creeds. It respects even in our church, the Augsburg confession. And I think that's mm-hmm. true of someone like Spainer is, is, is a Lutheran. He doesn't think those um, they're, they're no guarantee of true Christianity, and, and they can't stand alone. But I think um, they at least give us wisdom uh, to learn right, from. We right. should be we should be very cautious about casting aside centuries of of of, of that common belief. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was just thrilled to see him there, and, and we also did a series of talks, kind of rough draft presentations in the library, and it. I remember watching him and Sarah have a conversation about their two chapters. And, and so I, mm-hmm. I appreciate that he not only wrote the chapter, but he put it in such intentional conversation with what came earlier, because that just underscored this notion of the book as a conversation. And Right, right. And it's not an uncritical conversation either. No, I mean, it's no. not a, you know, let's, let's highlight what's awesome about previous chapters, but it's a, okay, I think you might be thinking about this wrong, and here's why. Yep. <laughs> Which, yeah, so I, I appreciate, I mean, I and I hope that then characterizes the conversations we need to have that mm-hmm. I, I mean at some point here I'm, I'm meaning to meet with our provost to talk about what's the next step for Bethel and all this and so yeah I guess I would hope you would see that model playing out you know you know between embodied persons not just in the pages of a book mm-hmm. very good well that same section of the book and and you know the section is labeled responses to pietism uh, but you've got another name I'm probably going to mispronounce Samuel Zalanga mm-hmm Okay, uh, and he, he leads with a warning that might be funny if it weren't so true. Margaret Thatcher wants your soul. How does Zalanga's case for a strong social critical side to Christian education fit with the rest of this volume? Right, so this I, I appreciate that we do end with a couple of chapters that maybe take our heads out of the clouds and suggest that we, we, have, to, we have to pursue all these things within... Um, not just an institutional environment, but within an economy that might um, <laughs> might have different interests at heart. And, and mm-hmm. so Samuel is Samuel is telling a kind of narrative about the influence of neoliberalism. So um, and and you know first of all what it is and why it has a different view of the human person and of the talos mm-hmm. of our existence and um, and what that then means for higher education. And, you know, I mean, the historian of me wants, I mean, we, we went back and forth editing that chapter because the historian of me wants to nitpick and nuance all of the claims. And, and he's, <laughs> he's painting a fairly broad brush stroke of what, what's been happening to American higher education and, and not just Christian colleges, but generally what, oh sure you know, the commoditization of education. And, um, and I think it certainly hits us in the humanities hard. It hits the social sciences hard. And I, I think it's a reality we have to inhabit is, it produces a certain view of what is the value of education, what is its purpose, um, but also what is the nature of um, transforming persons look like. You know, pietists have these grand ambitions, maybe even within education, that we can form these these whole and holy persons whose head and heart and hands have been transformed through the processes of education, and they go out and they serve the common good, but maybe that's not a kind of education that's being valued by the market. And if mm-hmm. it's not valued by the market, why are we doing it anymore? Um, so I, I appreciate it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a sour or at least a bittersweet note to end on. I mean, I think he, I think he's really taken as, as an African sociologist with this pietist notion of education, but I think is rightly 
Um, skeptical might be too strong, but wondering how we do that when we're surrounded by some of the economic pressures and some competing assumptions that might be antithetical to our own. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I've also been in the middle of all this, part of a, a, a group of trustees and administrators and faculty wrestling with these economic pressures. And, and on the one hand, I, I, I get why Samuel is concerned and I'm, I'm kind of, I try to be hopeful. There, there's a part of me that wonders if we're just kind of um, singing into a wind and, and in 10 years, we'll look back and, and say Bethel is a very different place despite a book like this because we've had to respond to these pressures. But mm -hmm. it's been, I mean, I guess what, what makes me more optimistic is there's a pretty deeply held consensus crossing all these constituencies at Bethel, at least, that, um, that education is not purely a commodity and that mm -hmm. this is something that requires a certain view of the human person that um, does not reduce them to a kind of, um, you know, a, a piece within the marketplace that can be bought and sold. Right, right. Um, and now, those are all noble sentiments. We've also got to invest in certain things that the market doesn't value. But um, mm -hmm. that left me a little bit more optimistic, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, and that's one of the things that gives me hope about my own college is that whenever an administrator refers to our students as customers, it's our <laughs> chair, it's the chair of our business department that always speaks up first and yells the loudest. <laughs> so... I figure if, if if resistance is to come, that's where I want it to come from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Chris, the final essay in this collection is yours, and you ponder the place that online education might have in a pietist-influenced vision mm -hmm. of college education. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that you know our uh, the, the listeners of the Christian Humanist podcast had a good time when Michael Farmer and I sparred about this. Uh, but I want to hear from you. Tell us some of the deliberations that you bring in the concluding essay of this collection. Sure. So I, I, I'm, uh, I mean, I am conflicted about a lot of things. I'm, I'm pretty deeply conflicted about online education. I mean, on the one hand, I've been fairly active within our faculty in exploring it. Um, you know, I've taught a class purely online. I've taught a couple of classes hybrid. Now I'm certainly interested in the role that technological change um, can play here. I'm I've also complained about it in certain places. Mm -hmm. So what, what I want to do is if the whole the whole notion of this book is how does pietism offer, or at least this kind of historic pietist ethos, offer a usable past to an institution like ours? What what resources, what suggestions does pietism have to offer to us? And, and so I can see, I can see a couple of sides here. I mean, I, and on the one hand, I think pietism does suggest that we not be hidebound, we not be bound to here's how something has been for a hundred years and therefore it must be so. And, and I think you've got a kind of tradition within pietism of um, even welcoming technological change, of embracing new media. Um, I think at its best, online education is is seeking um, kind of equity or justice, that it's, it's trying to make this incredibly expensive model of education available to a wider swath of the population, and not just here, but around the world. And maybe this kind of technological change can do that. And, and that should resonate really well for a tradition who speaks very highly of the work of someone like A.H. Franke, who mm -hmm. tried to offer education to all segments of society in his part of Germany. I mean, I think at the same time, my, my deep kind of existential crisis here is that um, I'm not sure that online disembodied education can deliver what we've been promising the rest of this book, which mm -hmm. is this organic metaphor for a conversion of persons that um, is not just filling heads with knowledge and it's not just training people to be skill, skillful. 
except in the broadest sense of how to live skillfully, how to live wisely, um, but is shaping their hearts. Um, and so I, I, I try to speak for colleagues of mine who I know believe deeply in that and, and probably can't be reconciled to the notion that that can happen unless you are sitting face-to-face with someone in a community or as right, Kathy Evans right. writes about being in this circle gathered around the Cheyenne medicine wheel and, and confronting each other's assumptions face-to-face. And, and um, so I, I, we're, we're kind of in, in the middle of a process actually about this right now. And so you're mm-hmm. kind of catching me at an interesting moment in Bethel's <laughs> move in the online world. But I mean, I think my, the upshot was that I think, we get hung up on innovation is purely technological change. And so we define innovation as, I mean, if you're innovative, you are, you are on board with that, that shifting tide. And if you're not innovative, you're, you're resisting it. And I tried to remove innovation to a different level and suggest that it's, it's making new. Mm-hmm. And that, so I, I also wanted to try to give some sort of pietism's view of education in a nutshell. And, and so in very broad strokes, I suggested it's about, new persons for a new church to um, to bring about a new world and offered some reflections on the first five verses of Revelation 21, mm-hmm. God making all things new. So I, And so maybe that's the test then. If online education is doing that, if it's making new persons for the benefit of a renewed church and a renewed world, then, you know, great. We ought to, we ought to invest in it. But if it's not, we ought to be a little suspicious of just being so bound to that very narrow definition of, of innovation. Right, right. I should have had my intern listen to your discussion so I knew which side you were on. And I <laughs> well, I mean, here, here's where I come down <laughs> on it is that, you know, pretty much all of us would agree that, you know, if we had the resources to put 10 students and a professor in a room to talk about Homer, that would be the best. Yep. And if we put, you know, a thousand students in front of computers to watch a YouTube clip and take a multiple choice quiz at the end, that's the worst. (laughs) The question becomes, if we don't have the resources to do what's best, Mm -hmm. would it be better to put a thousand students in a lecture hall to listen to a professor in person Mm -hmm. or to put 10 students and a professor online to talk about Homer? And I mean, that, that's the, uh, you know, online education is never about what's the best option, but what's the, uh, better option. And so, you know, I, I'll I'll just tell you how it tended to fall out is that, you know, Michael tended to prefer if we have to choose one of those middle stinky options, he'd prefer the lecture hall. I'd prefer the online. Okay. That's, that's my favorite version of the argument. I mean, that's the most fruitful arguments we've had about online are are like that. I mean, I I think Mm -hmm. we have a harder time is with the true believers who feel like there, there's, there's no significant difference, right? To use that literature. And I I think it's hard to have a serious argument like that. I think at the level of, um, given scarcity of resources, um, what are we able to do? I, I can have that discussion and I can, Mm -hmm. I can be persuaded either direction there. All right, Chris, I've held my peace long enough. (laughs) You at least hint at a few places in your contributions at the possibility of returning to the podcast world. Now's your chance, Garrett. Mm-hmm. Do you want to announce formally right now on this show the return of CWC, the radio show? Please? Uh, and break the internet? Is, is, <laughs> I don't know if I can be responsible for that level of apocalypse. Um, yeah, it's 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 fine. I was getting excited about it, and then yesterday I just got confronted with... Um, I think I spoke a little carelessly six years ago and someone came across it and I had to apologize to Simon. I'm, I'm a little oh, gun shy wow. about doing too much podcasting on, on the basis of that experience. I, I think what's more likely is 
I, I have talked about doing a Pietist Schoolman podcast, and that okay. that might be a way to continue this conversation. Um, you know, maybe mm-hmm. starting with some of the contributors or bringing in some other people to fill some of the uh, some of the holes in our book. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that will be the uh, <laughs> that will be the on ramp for me back onto this uh, podcasting highway. And we'll see if we can talk Sam into doing the uh, the CWC podcast. We've been doing webisodes in uh, the mm-hmm. history department and for CWC instead. But mm-hmm. I know we want to get the band back together. We have we have lunch <laughs> every Thursday, and this comes up at least every other week or so. I, right, I guess I can't right. make that announcement, but it's it's closer than it was two years ago. <laughs> okay, I, that's fair enough. Sure. <laughs> well, Chris, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality. I want to let you take the wheel for the home stretch. What about your volume about pietism or about anything else that we've not given enough time to? Would you like our listeners to depart thinking about? Sure. Well, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm struck that in many ways, this would be a perfect, this would have been a perfectly satisfactory project if all I did was kind of tell myself, here's what pietists do with education. And maybe if it went to kind of the Bethel community, and I still think that's my primary audience, but the fact that we got to publish it meant that we could start to aim it at, there are other colleges that, that share this tradition. Um, I think I can share that it's, it's being announced that I'm going to Messiah College at the end of April to do a chapel talk and meet with their faculty and, and do a church talk on pietism. And um, I mean, they're, they're influenced by the Brethren in Christ hybrid Anabaptist, Pietist, Wesleyan identity. So that'd be my kind of second tier. But if I'm really being optimistic, where I hope this book would be read would be at the level of um, people, at least in the evangelical world, or have at least some evangelical DNA left in them. Or I mean, I think even people in the Lutheran, I mean, I think even the mainline world can hear this, but certainly evangelicals, I want to try to convince them that even if they want to identify as Pietists, that that's an important, at least, source for their tradition. And, I mean, it's something David Williams writes about in his first chapter, that evangelicalism is sometimes this, this uh, probably not synthesis, more like argument between a kind of Puritan Reformed tradition and a Pietist tradition, or Don mm-hmm. Dayton says it's Pietist and Pentecostal. Um, and to that end, then, I guess I'll use this space to make a plug for someone else's book, which is two of our contributors, Roger Olson and Christian Collins Wynn, have a book with Erdman's called uh, Reclaiming Pietism, Retrieving an Evangelical Tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I had the honor to review it for Books and Culture and just thought that um, it stands on its own just as a good historical introduction to a pietism that wasn't confined just to Germany for about 50 years, but spread out to other parts of Europe and to these shores and um, even influences 20th century theology. But their larger argument is that evangelicals ought to recover this tradition, that it provides a different way of doing theology and they're theologians. I think it's doing lots of different things. And so I would hope that people in that evangelical or post-evangelical or, you know, they've, they've left it, but there's enough there that they resonate with it, that they'd maybe find this tradition um, winsome and, and useful. And um, mm-hmm. that, that maybe our two books would be um, helpful to them. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, Chris, thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Nathan. I just really appreciate the chance to, to talk some more with you. Very good. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in or for downloading. Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. And in behalf of the entire Christian Humanist Radio Network, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>